before I get started this morning, I wanted to um, just show you an example. This is a book that I ordered about, I don't know, six weeks ago. The title of it is Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. The reason I just got it this week, the reason is because it came from India, where it was republished. It was originally published um, in the Journal of Biblical um, Literature in 1910 by a guy named Phillips Berry. And uh, this is the kind, this is an example of bad theology, okay? You know, I, I didn't know when I ordered it, so I just ordered it. And then yesterday uh, I read through it. And a lot of footnotes um, quotes the uh, historian uh, Posibius and um, quotes from the Maccabean uh, books. So, you know, the history is right. He names the years that Antiochus was in, uh, enthroned and all of that. But then his conclusion is that um, the book of Daniel was written in 167 B.C. because there's nothing about Antiochus Epiphanes after 167 that's in the book of Daniel. So that's why it's not in there because it was written in 167. That's his conclusion. You know, not that Antiochus went to um, um, into Syria and that area for two and a half years and then he never went back to Jerusalem after uh, 167 or 168 B.C. Maybe that's why he's not written in the book of Daniel because he was off on some journey trying to um, find money to refill his coffers because he had uh, spent all the money that his kingdom had in order to send an army into Jerusalem. I mean, that's well documented. Um, he got defeated when he went to try and uh, capture some other people and get their money. And so he went back home basically with his tail between his legs. And then when he heard that uh, Jerusalem also had pushed back against his troops, um, he was very melancholy. He was probably actually, most people believe, insane, even more so than when he was trying to defeat people. And he went and died really of sadness on his bed uh, back, in Babylon, back in Babylon. So um, maybe that's why he's not written in the rest of the book. That couldn't be a possibility, right? And also, I guess he just forgot to read chapter 11, which comes after all of that, you know. Um, so, but anyway, an example written in 1910, um, old guys, right? I like to read old guys, guys who are dead, um, because typically those books are a little better, but not this one, okay? So not this one. Um, but anyway, it's, it's, at least I reconfirmed the history that we've been going through with that book. But um, bad theology. Um, you just have to, when you read broadly, you have to be careful, right? You're going to read good and bad, and that's the right thing to do. You need to read it all because you need to know the arguments. But then you need to be guided by the, the words out of Scripture. And um, so anyway, he believes the book was written in 167 um, as a motivating factor so that the, um, Judas Maccabeus would gather up an army and defeat Antiochus' troops. Um, that seems a little crazy that men would risk their life based upon a fairy tale that was written that year. But that's, what he, that's the argument, is that they wrote the book to motivate the troops um, because the book says they're going to win. <laughs> that seems a little ridiculous, doesn't it? 
So anyway, that's, that's the theory. So this is week number 35 in our study of the book of Daniel in chapter 8. And we've spent three weeks there looking at the vision that Daniel had uh, in, the, in the first 14 verses of this book. And you remember we have a, a, a ram that comes on the scene with two horns, um, explicitly stated to represent uh, the kings of Media and Persia, and that that ram is able to uh, roam as it uh, freely wants to. It can do its own will until a goat comes on the scene with a, conspic- a conspicuous horn between its eyes. And that, that um, goat uh, breaks the horns of the ram, throws him to the ground, tramples on him, and then the... Um, so the goat begins to boast and gloat and uh, uh, amplify himself. And as when that happens, his horn is then broken. And um, out of that horn come four more horns. And then out of those four horns, out of one of them comes a little horn, but who becomes exceedingly great, so great that he causes the stars, of, uh, the stars to fall and some of the host of heaven to fall, and when those fall to the earth, he tramples on top of them, and then he is also able to do his will, such that he speaks among the, he speaks against the prince of princes. He's able to stop the regular sacrifices. He's able to um, to trample the host of heaven. Uh, so he exercises his own will, and so Daniel's seeing all of this in in panorama, right? I mean, it's a vision. He actually sees these things happen, um, and then ultimately that vision ends with um, two angels talking to one another, one uh, asking the other, how long is this going to go on? And he then says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. And so we talked about that last time, right, trying to figure out what those 2,300 evenings and mornings are. That, that matches to nothing else in eschatology out of the scriptures. There's no other mention of 2,300 days. You divide it in two, trying to say it really meant 2,300 sacrifices, and even that doesn't fit anything. And in this book that I just mentioned by Phillips Barry, um, he goes through some of those arguments and saying, well, um, you know, we've got to reconcile this, and then ultimately is not able to. Um, so uh, we couldn't reconcile that either, until you look at the uh, activity or the influence that Antiochus Epiphanes had uh, with the priests and then ultimately invading Jerusalem and all of that. And so we're able pretty well to match up the activities of Antiochus with those 2,300 days. We don't know exactly what event occurred to stop the sacrifices, but we do know they were stopped because that's what the scriptures say. We know when they were restarted because that's well documented in history. Um, so matching those things uh, pretty well with the activity of Antiochus Epiphanes. That's what I believe happened. Um, I believe this 2300 days doesn't speak of anything um, that is seen anywhere else in scripture. Uh, it doesn't match any of the other uh, eschatology timelines. And it's one of the things I believe that distinguishes the little horn of chapter 8 from the little horn of chapter 7, that they're not the same person, uh, even though they have similar activities, that they come from different kingdoms, and the time frames and references are different for their activities. 
And so those things don't reconcile. So some of the things are similar. That's undoubtedly true, but some are not. And so if some are not, they can't be the same person. And so that was kind of our conclusion. That's where we uh, wound up last year and last week. And so now we look at um, the interpretation of this vision given to Daniel. That's where we'll be this morning. Uh, understanding we've already talked about a lot of these things that we'll look at this morning. So we may, may, we may move at a faster pace. We may not. So um, we'll begin by reading this interpretation that's given to Daniel in uh, Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 15. So Daniel 8, 15, there the scripture reads, When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold... Standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard a voice of a man between the banks of Ulay, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the end time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And and through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He He will even oppose the prince of princes but he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and the mornings, which has been told, is true. Keep the, but keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business, but I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. Okay, so here we have the interpretation given to Daniel um, by the angel Gabriel. Okay, so he says that, he starts out by saying um, his vision is done, right? Because in verse 15, he says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision. So the vision that he's been seeing in Panorama is, is no longer there. So this conversation that he has is not part of the vision. The vision is over. And then he has this visitation um, from this angel. Now, this causes you to think, well, was Daniel actually in the city of Susa then? 
because he talks about this voice coming from off the Ule River, right? So there are many people who would take the interpretation or the translation or the, the view that Daniel is actually in the city of Susa when he has this vision because the vision's over now and he's, these things he describes are still in Susa or at least outside of Susa because the Ule River runs right beside the city of Susa. So that's probably a reasonable way to think about this because at this point the vision is over. Um, so he sees someone standing beside him who looks like a man, right? Now, if you have an angel, and I believe this is Gabriel the angel because that's what he's called, that's his name, why would he appear to Daniel as a man? Because we know that angels um, don't look like men, right? They're never described in the scripture as looking like men. But here, Gabriel is described as looking like a man. And Gabriel's an archangel, so he's not just a a regular angel, right? I mean, he's one of the, the powerful ones. He's the one who in the next chapter will fight against the, uh, the angels that are sided with Satan so he can go and give Daniel a message. So he's not just a regular. Why would he appear as a man? What's that? It was not to overwhelm him, right? That could be one reason. What else are you thinking? I mean, he's going to have this conversation, right? They're going to talk about this, so... Probably would be better if you didn't have this angel with you know all his wings and all flying around and you know you're, that's what you're paying attention to instead of what he says. Okay, so he, I do think it's to not frighten him and not over overwhelm him so much. But look at what happens to Daniel. He's still scared to death, right? And so, but anyway, we have this um, this angel who appears to him. Now, this is not the only time when Gabriel will come and uh, give Daniel some information that he doesn't previously have. Okay, he's got this vision. So in the next chapter, look over in 9, verse 21. This is Daniel um, understanding um, that the prophecy um, says that they're only going to be in captivity 70 years, and it's been 70 years. So he petitions God, please let us return to Jerusalem for your name's sake. And um, he goes through all this petition with God. And so in somewhat in response to that, in verse 21, he says, while I was still speaking in prayer. So this prayer has been going on for a while. The man, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously. So he recognizes him, right? whom I had seen previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. And then look at this. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, and then he goes into this conversation. So this is an angel Gabriel coming and having a conversation with Daniel. And so, and they're, you know, they, they converse back and forth here. And so that's kind of what's going on here, except for Gabriel does most of the talking. But um, later, when he comes back, now this, if you look at chapter 9, um, we'll see this. It's in the first year of Darius, which would be um, after Cyrus had come in and taken Babylon. And you remember this, in chapter 8, we're in the third year of the kingship of Belshazzar. So there's about 10, 12 years between 
these two times when Gabriel visits him. So these, to us, we read it sequentially, right? And these are where these things are just happening, but they're not. I mean, if you go back to the first interpretation of Daniel, you know, the statue of Nebuchadnezzar and all, when we get to here, it's been 50 years since he did that. You remember he did that when he was uh, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15 years old, something like that probably. And now here he is 50 years later when we get to um, the vision that he had in chapter 7. And now we're only two years later uh, in chapter 8. And But then it's another 12, 13, 15 years before we get to chapter 9. So these things are not happening as we think of as just sequentially. There's some a good bit of time going on here. But the same angel will come back and talk to him again. Now, this is, this is not Daniel imagining something. This is not Daniel wondering and, and so God speaking out of heaven to him. This is God sending a literal angel to come down and have a conversation with him. So not, you know, does that happen today? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe there's an angel who comes down and looks like a man and talks to people. I don't know. Could happen, right? So, but it happened here. This guy looks like a man and, um, and begins to have this conversation with Daniel. So back over in um, verse 16 of chapter 8, he says, And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Ulay. Now, who is that? You notice he's not on the banks, right? He's between the banks, which means what? He's in the water, right? He's in the midst of the water of the river. So this is probably the voice of God speaking to the angel to give him instruction of what to do is probably the best way to understand this. Don't know that, doesn't say that, right? But... You don't have a guy swimming in the middle of the river speaking to this angel. That's not what's going on. I doubt it. Only a few. Yeah, that's very true. Angels do the these angels do the will of God, right? The ones who are fallen do the will of their master Satan. So those are the distinguishing marks of angels. So and and so this angel hears the voice of God. Um, say to him, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. You know, you notice this matches perfectly what Daniel wanted, right? You look in verse 15, Daniel had seen this vision and he said, I sought to understand it. I want to know what this means. And so God answers that request and sends an angel to explain it to him, to give him understanding of it. Now, very interestingly, at the end of all of this, right, down in verse 27, Daniel says, I was astounded at the vision and there was none, New American Standard would say, to explain it. What does the ESV or another translation say? No one understood it. Daniel doesn't understand, even though an angel comes to give him understanding. So he wrote it all down so that other people could understand it maybe. But Daniel himself is perplexed by all of this, even at the end, after the angel comes and explains to him what it is. Did Daniel know there was a a nation called Greece? I don't know. Probably not, right? So, I mean, it's... it's, Daniel wrote um, somewhere in the middle of the 6th century B.C., 550 or 540 or 530 or somewhere in there, right? And Antiochus doesn't come until um, 170 B.C. 
So there's 370 years between the time when Daniel sees this and when it actually takes place, or at least the first visit of it takes place. So there's a long time between when Daniel sees this vision and when it actually does take place. So a lot goes on in those times. Go ahead, Anna. I'm just asking, um, if it's Antiochus who's fulfilling this, right? Then I don't understand verse 17. Understand, O son of man, that the vision towards the time of the end. Oh, we'll, t- we'll talk about that phrase, time of the end. We'll go into detail. What does time of the end mean? We're getting there, okay? I'll get there in just a second. <laughs> so, yeah, we have to talk about that because I know that has um, brings up things in your mind. Go ahead, John David. Uh, just regarding Daniel's confusion or astounding, he had to be purposely deceptive if he was writing this as these events were going on, that there was no way to understand it. He was overwhelmed. You would have him trying to deceive people into thinking this was a book that was written beforehand, and that would attack his credibility if we were to actually view this as one's written in 167. Absolutely. So the text itself says either Daniel was a liar and a fraud, or he actually was writing this before these things happened and didn't understand it. Right, and you know, because you can't reconcile it being written in the 2nd century B.C., it can't. I mean, you, you really speak against yourself to do that. So now there's a new theory, right? there's always new theories of men, is that it all wasn't written in the 2nd century B.C. Some of it was written before. So we have multiple imposters writing this one book to be given, put into the canon by the Jews. And it, it, just, it just it goes on and on, right? When they can't reconcile one thing, then they make up something else. And, and so now the best scholars... And I mean, you can go read this as well as I can. The best scholars, the majority of scholars agree that Daniel was written in 2nd century B.C., but some now think that some of it was written before that. And you're like, really? You know, it's written in 6th century B.C. by Daniel, and that's why it was in the canon well before um, the 2nd century B.C. And that's why it was accepted as prophecy by the Jews. So, you know, yeah, would the Jews, would, would a whole band of Jews against the most powerful man on the planet risk their lives to go fight against him because some guy had just written that it's only going to last for 2,300 days? I mean, that's, that's ludicrous, right? That being like us going to war with someone today and me going and writing something that everybody knew I had just written it that says this is only going to last for two years. And then men going and risking their life because I said it would only last for two years and they knew it would be over. I mean, really? Is that how it happened? That just doesn't make sense, does it? But that is the argument against the book of Daniel. That is where they go. That is their, the ground they stand on. I think it's shifting sand. Daniel, and looking at that, I think he was talking about that even some of the words that Daniel used to show that it was written when it was actually written, some of the words that were used in the book were no longer in use or in vogue in the second century. But that's because you had a good imposter, and he, he was wise enough to use words that weren't used anymore. Right? I mean, that's the theory. That's what's said. So, you know, it's just not credible. Not credible. But if you go read the most recent publications, that is what they will say. They, I mean, that is the majority opinion. So of biblical scholars, not of believers, but of biblical scholars. 
you know, there are many biblical scholars who know more about um, probably the history of the book than I do who are not believers. So they don't believe the book. You know, they take a pair of scissors to it. So um, just take that for what it's worth. Um, so you'll notice also that Gabriel addresses Daniel as, what's he calling? Son of man. That phrase we've seen before, right? Used a couple of times in the book of Daniel, but used uniquely back in chapter 7, right? You remember back in chapter 7, down in uh, verse 13, I think it was? Yeah, where he says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days. The only place in Scripture, in Old Testament Scripture, where that phrase, son of man, is not applied to a, a, a true man. The only place. So you can go read them all. I invite you to do that. You know, you've got some aid that you use to find things in Scripture. Go look up every reference in the Old Testament of Son of Man, and every one of them, except for chapter 7 of Daniel, refers to a literal person who's writing at that time. That's what this one does, right? I mean, he looks at him and he says, Son of Man. Now, why would the angel Gabriel call Daniel a son of man? Why is he, I mean, that seems like a, I'm going to walk up to you tomorrow and I'm going to say son of man and then we'll begin to have a conversation. Why does he do that? Okay, I mean, what, what does it do if an angel comes up to you and, say, and it looks like a man, right? It looks like you and I would look and he says son of man. Absolutely. He's drawing a distinction between I look like you but I'm not like you. Right? You're a man. I'm not. I've been here for a long time. Right? I'm going to be here forever. And so I'm not like you. And so he is making that distinction. Even though I look like you, I'm not like you. Okay? So that's basically why I believe he calls him son of man. Is to, so Daniel will recognize his position before this angel. Okay? This angel is speaking for God who just told him and Daniel heard it for him to speak to him and give him understanding. So it, it, it authenticates who's speaking to him and the message that he's going to give him. Okay, so then we go down to where Anna wanted to take us. And he says in verse 17, So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. Now, he looks like a man. He's talking like a man. Why would Daniel be so terrified? That he, I mean, he's talking literally prostrate on his face before this angel. What, what's the deal? Well, everywhere in Scripture that angels are ever presented, men are always doing that. Yeah. The angels are always having to say, do not be afraid. Right. So something about their presence. The... Even if they go like a man, right. something about them. Maybe it's their voice. Sounds like many waters or something. You know, I don't, I don't know. But there's something about an angel. I mean, the ones who come uh, to the shepherds, right? Do not be afraid. You go to the book of Revelation and Daniel, every time he sees, I mean, John, every time he sees an angel, he bows before him. And the angels grab him and say, don't do that. You worship only God, right? Don't worship me. So there's something about an angel that terrifies men. So, and Daniel is terrified here. Uh, So he falls on his face 
And he says, um, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Okay? Time of the end. Now, immediately things come into your mind, right? And you think immediately of what? The end times, the end of the age, right? The time when the Armageddon happens, when the tribulation is going on. Those are all, that comes into your mind immediately, right? Would that have come into Daniel's mind immediately? He's speaking to Daniel, right? This speaks of the end of the time. Daniel didn't know that yet. He didn't know that until chapter 9. Because he says, I was reading and I realized. So he doesn't know that yet. And that's 10 years into the 12, 13 years into the future from when he sees this vision before he real, recognizes that the captivity is only going to last for 70 years. So he doesn't know that. So would Daniel have jumped to Armageddon and to the end of the world and tribulation? No, because he didn't know about all that, right? Daniel didn't have that understanding that that all was coming. Now, he had the prophecies that had been given before him, so he, he does know there's a Messiah coming, okay? But he, and he knows that the resurrection of the dead is coming because he'll write about it over in chapter 12, but he sees them side by side, not separated by any space and time. He, he doesn't see the coming of Christ as being separated by any time, because the prophecies in the Old Testament see it side by side, the first and the second parousia. So he, he doesn't know that. So would Daniel have, have jumped to the things that we don't jump to? I doubt it. I doubt it. I don't think he knew about all that. So we'll keep going because he'll, he'll use this phrase more. So I, I, actually, I don't think the first understanding of the end of time is what we are just talking about. The, the end of the age. I don't think that's the first understanding that would come to Daniel's mind here. Okay, so we'll go on, and, and we'll, I'm not going to leave it. We'll, we'll talk about it some more, because he says, now while he was talking, verse 18, with me, I sank into a deep sleep. Really? Really? This, this angel's coming to give you what you asked for, and so you fall asleep? No. He passed out. He loses consciousness. He's so terrified before this angel that he actually faints. He loses consciousness. How old was he at this point in his life? Um, 65? Something like that, maybe? Some, somewhere, somewhere in there? <coughs> so, um, not a young man. And so, he, he passes out, basically. He loses consciousness. He doesn't fall asleep. He's not snoring here. Okay. So he passes out from the, the, just all that is happening to him. First of all, the, the vision terrified him. We don't know how long this vision went on for, right? I mean, for us, it's only 14 verses. It could have been hours for Daniel. We don't know how long it actually played out. Maybe he saw some of the details of the things that he writes about. We don't, we don't know. Um, and so he, he passes out, and then the angel touches him and makes him to stand upright. So I, I don't think at this point, I think he, he saw the vision and then he's out of the vision and then he, he passes out, right? And then the angel touches him and makes him stand upright. Is he conscious or unconscious? Don't know, right? 
but I think probably unconscious. But God's still communicating with him. Don't know. Can't, can't say for certain. He doesn't, you know, he says he's unconscious. And then this angel touches him and makes him stand upright. Does that mean he, he wakes up? I, I don't know. But he touched me. Right. Well, he definitely was on his face and he makes him stand up. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> so that that is a contrast. Is he unconscious and then conscious? Don't know. But this we do know. We do know that Gabriel was able to communicate with him, even if he was unconscious. Okay, because he knows what what Gabriel says. Go ahead. Eric? Okay. That's good. We're thinking the same thing, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so we, we actually don't know, but this we do know, that he understood the message that Gabriel gave him, or at least the words that Gabriel spoke, because he's able to record them of what he said to him. And so um, he said, I, in verse 19, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur, here it is, at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to an appointed time of the end. And you go, well, there it is, right? The appointed time, that's the day of the Lord. That's, that's got to be the end time, right? Right? Is that what you think about? The appointed time? Right. What, what could be a different interpretation of the end of time, an appointed time, uh, the, the end of the indignation? What, what would be reasonable, for, especially for Daniel? It could be the end of the abominations of Antiochus. Right. Okay. Or, or more specifically, the end of the time that the vision is speaking about. The vision covers the uh, media Persia and the Greek kingdoms, right? So at the end of that time frame, I believe, is, would make sense. I just showed you all of this. And now at the end of that is what we're talking about. Because notice that um, a little bit further down in verse 23... He says, and he's talking about these nations in the latter period of their rule. So at the end of their time, toward the end of their time, I think would be probably Daniel's first understanding of this, is that we're not talking about the tribulation time or Armageddon or all the stuff that we have the privilege of knowing about, but the end of the time that this vision covers is what I believe is probably the best first understanding of these phrases. Now, the appointed time, what what would that bring to mind? I mean, the well, that's what that's where we go, right? And we especially go to the second coming of Christ because that time has been fixed by God. Under God's control, absolutely. Absolutely, because all of these things and all of time of history of man, right, is controlled by what is God called in the book of Daniel? Well, how about the ruler of the realm of mankind, right? Remember when we went back and looked at that? Used repeatedly to speak of who God is, the ruler of the realm of mankind. So the history 
of man is not playing out apart from the will of God. It is playing out according to the plan of the sovereign Lord. And so the appointed time, this is the appointed time for the indignation to happen. The indignation, what does indignation mean? Word you use every day, right? Indignate, it means like anger, wrath, judgment, punishment. That's what indignation is. All right, so at the end of the indignation, so you have to ask then the question, whose indignation? So what are we talking about here when he says at the end of the indignation? Whose indignation are we talking about? So is Israel the one who's angry and exa- right and punishing people? What do you think? End of the That would be the end of the indignation, right? Indicating whose indignation is it? Right, and he was, and he was. Okay, but when you talk about indignation against the nation of Israel, whose indignation are we talking about? God's. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't use an angry human to to, um, put forth his indignation against the nation, right? Why is it that Antiochus was able to overrule and to do the things in Jerusalem that he did? Why? Because it was punishment for their former sins. I think the, I think the scripture makes that pretty clear, that they were under judgment of God, even though he was using a human agency to carry out that judgment. Because certainly, if Antiochus is king, what does that mean is true about Antiochus? that God appointed him as king, right? Remember that back in chapter 2? It's God who sets kings and, and, and takes kings down. And so Antiochus, even being an evil, one of the most evil kings ever on the planet, even that being true, he still was put there by God and according to God's sovereign plan. That's hard to accept. That's hard to deal with, right? I mean, the evil men who rule empires today, and there are plenty of them, appointed by God to do so, established by God to do so. The good rulers who rule today, if there are any, appointed by God to do so. It's all under God's sovereign control. And he can turn the hearts of kings. He can put things into the minds of kings. He can establish kings. He can take kings down. Don't ever think that he can't. And so at this time, he allowed and actually um, probably orchestrated all of the Greek kingdom that got split into four kingdoms to become a mighty kingdom and out of that kingdom to become Antiochus Epiphanes to judge Israel. It's not coincidental that the Seleucids controlled all of that area. It's not coincidental and that Antiochus came from Seleucus, who was one of the the first to gain a kingdom 
after Alexander the Great died. It's not coincidental that all that happened. And Antiochus is, I believe, the sorry, is the eighth king, I think, of the Seleucids. So he's not first. And so it is down. It's not at the end. I would never say it is. The the Seleucids uh, reigned in Babylon until 53 B.C. when the Parthians took them over. Okay, the Parthians still being Hellenistic, still carrying on basically the same culture, but being in control and putting the Seleucids down. All right, but over in Jerusalem, after Antiochus is kicked out, it's not the Seleucids who rule. There's where you have the Hasmonean dynasty down until 63 BC when the Romans came in and made it a republic. So the Seleucids no longer rule in Judea. They raid it. They take it over for a few years and things go back and forth. But it's not controlled by them. It's controlled by the Hasmonean dynasty in Jerusalem. And the Seleucids begin to diminish after Antiochus. They have many more kings. They have like 20 more kings. Some of them only lasting for a couple of months. But they do have a whole bunch more kings. And called Antiochus, the third, you know, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, all the way down. Um, but they don't have the influence and the domination that they had at the time when they overtook Judea. Tracy, you want to say something? Knowing that, you know, God appoints men to rule, do you, would you say then that the Maccabean revolt, revolt was, um, um, was also ordained? Yeah, I do. And, and, and not only... rectify that because they were revolting against a leader that God had allowed to be established. Right, but higher authority, right? Why were they revolting against that leader? Because he had stopped the regular sacrifices and had profaned the temple of God. So I'll serve God rather than serve a human king, right? And so they were actually, I think, according to Scripture, doing what they were commanded to do, which was kick those guys out and, and revolt against those who had profaned and spoke against and took the place of God. Because since we don't live in a theocracy, right. how do we translate that into the modern era? And I'll leave that to your own mind, but this I, I, I believe. that. Well, to obey scripture, can you actually revolt against the government? Can you? At the point where they cause you to sin, yes. At the point where they don't cause you to sin, no. Romans 16, right? You obey the authorities. Whether you have a good authority, a little earlier in Romans, or a bad authority, doesn't matter. You obey the ones who God ordained to be put in a position of authority over you. Now, that doesn't mean you agree with them. That doesn't mean you hold to their beliefs. But until they cause you to sin, you have to do pretty much what they say. You have to live by the rules they set. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not unique to Romans in Scripture. I actually think it's in many places. And so when you start talking about um, you know some of the activities that go on today in the name of God are they really in the name of God according to what scriptures would inform our minds to believe maybe not maybe not maybe it's men doing what they want to do in the name of God 
You have to be careful and you have to, you have to think rightly and you have to be governed by the biblical instruction and not just what you think is right or what appears to be right or what makes sense to be right. That's why we need to be informed from the scriptures so that our thinking will be congruent to what the scriptures teach. So, yeah, I think that there's a lot of things going on today that actually, in the name of God, that should not. Could you name a couple? <laughs> no. <laughs> Go ahead, Bob. Nebuchadnezzar was appointed by God to punish was taken out of that by the Medes and Persians, which were appointed by God to Absolutely. Over and over, until you get to the end of the seventh chapter, when all of these were uh, replaced by the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Right, ultimately. Ultimately, the reign of righteousness of Christ. Isn't that the end of the age that uh, we're talking about in the eighth and ninth chapter? Not in the 8th chapter. The 8th chapter where we're we're parked talks about the the kingdoms of the Medo-Persians and the Greeks only. Right? That's the time frame that chapter 8 covers. Doesn't go... Chapter 9, totally different story. And we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 9. The end of the 8th? I would never say, okay... I would not argue against that there's not a double meaning in some of these terms. Okay? I would not say... Now, I'm not sure Daniel understood that, but we have more revelation than Daniel had. So I'm not saying that there's not a secondary meaning that would speak to the end of the age. Okay? Because some of these things that are said here go beyond Antiochus, it appears. I think, you know, there's this debate. Can everything in Daniel 8, was everything in Daniel 8 fulfilled by Antiochus? And I think you can make a pretty strong argument that the answer is yes. But there are people who would make an argument that know that most of it was, but not everything was literally done by Antiochus. Okay, I'm not going to push very hard against that. I think that could be a secondary understanding. It's probably not one that Daniel had. But I think with the additional revelation that we have, yeah, that could be a secondary. And that Antiochus was a foreshadowing of the ultimate end of the age. 